The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Love John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 29. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Anna Grace. Well, here we are. First sermon. Last year, uh, right around this time, I and actually a few other people in the room uh, took a trip to Israel uh, together. And we arrived there during the harvest season. And we had this uh, tour guide whose name was Yoav. And we were riding around in this, in this bus. And the, uh, the vineyards, as we passed them, were just, were just heavy with purple grapes. 
And we would pass these vineyards and Yoav would get on the microphone in the bus and he would tell us, look at the grapes, look at the grapes. And he kept saying, look at the grapes, look at the grapes. And, and, and he was so enthusiastic about it and excited about these grapes. And, and I asked him, Yoav, what, what's the deal? You know, like, why, why are you so excited about these grapes? Because as an American, I see, you know, a field ready for harvest, and I just think, well, that's just part of the agricultural cycle. Uh, that's no big deal, right? It's just, yeah, of course, what were you expecting to happen? But what Yoav said when I, when I asked that question, it really kind of caught me off guard. Because what he said is, he said, when, when I see those grapes, I see water. I see, is my mic working? Am I, am I good? Okay, sorry. I would, he, said, he said, when I see those grapes, those grapes ready for harvest there, I see water. I see water in a desert. He goes, it's kind of a miracle when you think about it, isn't it? Today's scripture is about water. It's about water in a desert, and it's also about thirst. Most people in this room really, we don't know what it means to thirst. Uh, we know to a degree, but, but water is just one of the most common commodities that's around, right? We turn on a faucet and the stuff just comes pouring out. It's just, it's there for us. And so we don't really thirst for water in the, ma- in the ways that so many others down through history have, have kind of built their day around the process of how are we getting the water for the day. But we all thirst. We all thirst. We thirst for things beyond water. We thirst for peace. We thirst for peace with our neighbors, for peace with this world that we inhabit. We thirst for peace with our maker. All of us do. We're all at various stages of unrest. Everybody in this room is at various stages of unrest. And we thirst. We thirst for meaning. And we thirst for acceptance. And we thirst for significance. And for the promise of being the object of somebody's affection someday. We thirst for knowing that things are going to be okay when we can't for the life of us see how. We thirst for peace. That's part of the human experience is we thirst for peace. And because we thirst, we go regularly to a variety of wells to slake that thirst. We go to the well of achievement, of money, of sex, of pleasure, of the anesthetic, of the addictions that we trust to numb our pain. And we go to these wells. And so I want to ask the question as we get into this, what thirsts drive you and what wells do you go to to try to satisfy that thirst? Put another way, what do you want? And do you know? Do you actually know what you want? If we were to examine our hearts and to see what drives us, and what wells they drive us to, we will often find, and this is a key theme for this message, is that our thirst is very, very often tied to our pain. Our thirst is tied to our pain. Because all of us, we, just, we all do something with our pain. Everybody does something with their pain. And many of us build our entire way of life around how we're going to deal 
with our pain. In today's text, we meet a woman whose life is defined by her thirst for peace, and it's also defined by her pain. And when she encounters Jesus, one of the things that happens is we learn a lot about Jesus. One of the things that I will regularly return to as a preacher for this congregation is things that help us understand who Jesus really was. Because we live in a culture where we co-opt Jesus and we make him into a whole lot of things. And we think Jesus is, is kind of on board with whatever we're on board with. Turns out when you read scripture, um, he's generally, there's a lot of times when he's not uh, on board with what we're on board with. But we're going to talk about that. But when this woman encounters Jesus, what he does is he gets to her thirst and he gets there quickly. And the way he does it is he goes to her heart through a wound. To the heart through a wound. So I'm just going to talk about this passage. If you're looking for a three-point outline, I don't have one. I'm just going to tell you a story uh, this morning. Um, Also, you should know I generally won't have a three-point outline. Um, But I'll try to tell you where we're going. Jesus went through Samaria, and he was going on his way from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and he was passing through Samaria, and he came to Jacob's well in Sychar, and he was tired, and he was thirsty, and so he sat down to take a rest. And a woman came in the middle of the day, which was not the typical time people would come, so this was a woman who was coming so she wouldn't be around other people. She wouldn't be there at the same time. And, And she came to draw water, and Jesus began a conversation with her. He's the one who started this conversation. And what he said to her is, will you give me a drink? And I love that Jesus is using his own thirst as an opportunity to reach out to this woman and to start a conversation with her. She has no idea where it's going, and he does. Addressing a Samaritan and a woman was a scandalous thing for Jesus to do. Why? Well, we have to rewind. We have to go way back in time, about seven centuries. So earlier in 722 B.C., Israel was taken into exile by invading armies. And during that time, some of the Israelites who were taken into captivity, they're thinking about the future and what are we going, what's going to become of us, right? And so, and so some of the Israelites are determined, we are going to keep ourselves together come what may. We're going to stay together. We're going to keep the clans together. We're going to preserve the bloodline of Abraham. And so what they did is they said, in captivity, we're still only going to marry other Israelites. That's what we're going to do. We're going to stay together. We're going to marry within our own tribe. But there were others who went into captivity who knew we may never go home again. We may never get back to the promised land. This may be the new course, this may be the new reality for us. We don't know what's going to happen and we have to figure out how it is that we're going to live. And so some of them started new lives and the way they did that is they intermarried with their captors. And Samaritans were the descendants of those who intermarried and they came to be regarded by the Jewish people as betrayers of the bloodline of Abraham. And if you think about it, you can appreciate how they would have that, that sentiment. That you, 
You, you gave up too soon. You, 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 you betrayed this thing that we have clung to for our entire existence as a people. And the thinking was being a half of a Gentile is worse than being a whole Gentile. Because if you're a whole Gentile, you don't have any say in the matter. But if you're half a Gentile, somebody somewhere made a choice. So appreciate the complexity of the situation. No Israelite that was carried off truly knew if they were going to come back. They didn't know. And after the exiles, what it looked like to pick up the pieces of that catastrophe and come back home, it just looked different to different people. There was no roadmap here. And so many of the Jews who refused to intermarry, they came back and they went to Jerusalem and they rebuilt. They rebuilt the temple and they began to rebuild their, 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 their practices, their, their, their faith, the expression of their faith. But those who chose to intermarry, they, they weren't welcomed back. And this includes the Samaritans. So empathize with this woman for a minute. Think of an event in your own life that just kind of broke it. Think of an event that happened in your life that just was kind of a, a breaking moment where life just wasn't the same after that thing happened. If you live long enough, you will have one of these. You will have many of these, right? Some of these events are, are kind of small relatively in scale, even though they're catastrophic, like, like infidelity, uh, a medical crisis, betrayal of some kind, a sudden loss, some of these events really are, are, are larger on a huge scale and are shared by everybody, a terrorist attack, a hurricane, an epidemic, an economic collapse. But something happens, and it fundamentally breaks or it changes life as you know it. And then when the dust settles, we can't return to what we knew before, and so we have to figure out a new normal. We have to figure out what's next. What is that situation for you? As I ask the question, what is that situation for you, I know that what I'm talking about, what I'm asking you to think about is sacred ground, isn't it? That's a holy place. You don't just let anybody into that, that thing that broke. It's complicated. It's easy to treat a Samaritan here as a cartoon character, but she's not. It's complicated. We often feel as though we have no map forward. We don't know the clear way to go. The event looms kind of like a fog, and we can't immediately see through it. We can't immediately see past it. And this is what happened in Israel during the exiles. And when they were carried off, each and every person had to wrestle with the possibility that they might never come home again. And so then what? The Samaritans, they rebuilt. But they rebuilt outside of Jerusalem. And they did kind of what the Jews were doing. They rebuilt their religion, but they rebuilt it a little bit differently. They had a different place of worship than Mount Zion. They put their, their place of worship on top of Mount Gerizim instead of Mount Zion, apart from Jerusalem. They had the word of God, but they excluded everything from the scriptures except for the first five books of Moses. And that, that was their scriptures. Basically, what they did, since they weren't welcome home, is they came up with a new version of this old faith. It was a part of them, but they couldn't really have it back. And as it often happens, those they were the closest to, their ancestral line were the ones who held them in the highest contempt. 
we do this. We do this. We size up individuals by the groups to which we perceive they belong, and then we stop. And we stop at the surface, and that's it. I know everything I need to know about you because of what you did in this situation. The other scandal that's happening here, and perhaps the the biggest one, really, uh, based on Jesus' own disciples' reaction, is the fact that Jesus isn't just talking to a Samaritan, but he's talking to a, a woman. And that didn't happen. It just was it was it was not only considered inappropriate for a rabbi, but historical records say rabbis would have considered it actually just a waste of time to talk to a woman. They just didn't do it. Jesus is the one who starts this conversation. He's not enduring the conversation. He's not tolerating the conversation. He started this conversation. Frederick Bigner, the author and Presbyterian minister, said this. He said, if we are to love our neighbors, before we must do anything else, we must see our neighbors. With our imagination as well as with our eyes, that is to say like artists, we must see not just their faces, but the life behind their faces. Why do we hold each other in contempt? Why do we do that? What are we trying to preserve? What are we trying to protect when we hold people in contempt? There beside Jacob's well, a bystander might have looked at what was happening and seen two nations encountering each other. And one is saying, you betrayed us. And the other is saying, you rejected us. But what follows is so much better than that. Because it's not just two nations. It's two people. And one of them is Jesus. And he is seeing his neighbor. We share something in common with this woman. And that is this. Jesus knows us. You may not think he does. The woman had no idea that Jesus knew her. That he knew her story. But he did. And he knows us too. He knows our stories. He knows our histories, our past failures. He knows our thirst for peace. He knows the wells we drink from. He knows those things about us that might cause us to avert our eyes if anybody looks too carefully at us. And Jesus uses his own thirst to initiate a conversation with this Samaritan woman. And in the process of doing this, he's fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 65.1, which says this, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. Through this conversation, the woman says some things to Jesus that are sarcastic, that are biting. She says things She's, she's kind of making him earn the moment. You do this, right? We do this. You get mad at somebody. In marriage, this happens all the time, right? Where I'm, I'm not happy with you, you're going to say hi to me, and the way I'm going to respond to your hello is going to let you know we're not cool, right? <laughs> she's making him earn this moment, and she's kind of mocking Jesus in some of the things that she says. When she says things like, well, you have no bucket, and this well is deep. How are you going to get the water out of here? Or 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? Or give me some of this living water you're talking about so I don't have to keep coming here to this dumb well. Right? Let me ask you a question. How receptive must a person be for us to be willing to offer them something good? How receptive does a person have to be for you to give them something good? Do they have to appreciate it? To give somebody something worthwhile, to give somebody good, somebody something good. Do you, let me put, let me flip the equation. Are you somebody who uses sarcasm, cynicism, or anger to keep people from getting too close to you? To keep God, or perhaps even the idea of God, away from you and away from your pain? I'm going to shut this down. I ask you, what are you protecting? What are you protecting? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's not cutting through her facade in order to shame her. He's not doing this in order to rebuke her. He's doing this because he's calling for her to repent and to believe, and he is offering her a life that is free from ever thirsting again. This woman's mockery, is, it's, it's a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism to keep this religious man away from her sacred sorrow. When we find ourselves in a position where people who can help us and want to help us are the very people we're trying to keep away from the thing we need the most help with, we're in trouble. Jesus is getting to her heart through her wound. And he does it by bringing up the embarrassing subject of her marriage. He says, I want to continue this conversation. Go get your husband and bring him back here. And she says, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus says, I know. I know you've had five, actually. And I know that the man you're living with now is, is, is not a man you're married to. Now he has his finger on the wound. He has his finger on the wound of her sorrow. Just imagine it. Imagine the sorrow of being married five times and living with somebody who's not your husband. Five either failed or lost marriages. Imagine the shame. Imagine the words that were whispered about her. Imagine the things she might have done. Imagine the things that must have been done to her. Imagine how this woman must have negotiated with her pain in order to make some kind of peace with it, to just get up in the morning. Jesus tells her, you don't have to be thirsty. You don't have to be thirsty. You can have peace. You can have peace. One of the things I love about this passage that is challenging is you notice how at this point when Jesus tells her everything that she's done, she responds by trying to have actually a conversation about theology, right? 
And she kind of moves it that direction into, let's talk about you for a little bit. But what she does is she gets into this conversation about her unorthodox expression of faith, and she's wanting Jesus to justify what she's doing. And, and I love how Jesus responds because it's a challenge and a rebuke to us. Because what Jesus doesn't say is, it's fine, worship however you want. Instead, what he does is he tells her, actually, you're wrong. You're wrong. You worship what you don't know. Jesus cares about doctrinal clarity. The hope and the peace that he offers is anchored in doctrine, right? He's, he's not just a guy with a you know, sandwich board sign offering free hugs on the corner of, of the street. He, there's doctrine behind the peace that he gives. And it matters. He doesn't endorse inventing belief systems. To love Jesus, he says, in John 14, 15, is to obey his commands. To love Jesus is to receive the mercy and the redemption he offers as he offers it. The living water that takes away our thirst for peace. And so what is that water? What, is, what are we talking about here, this metaphor of water? What, is, what does he mean? How does Jesus take away our thirst? I want to conclude by looking past a sentimental answer to that question and actually instead looking at the answer Scripture itself provides for us. In other words, I want to look at a doctrine of a satisfied thirst. When Jesus tells this woman that he has water that will take away her thirst forever, he's actually not talking about something that he has someplace. He's talking about himself. He's saying... I am the thing that will satisfy your thirst for peace. It's, it's me, actually. He's talking about himself. He is the water. What she needs is him. And what he's doing is he's saying, and I offer myself to you. I offer myself to you. She needs him. She needs to come to him for her spiritual thirst. She needs to bring him her pain. She needs to bring to him her reputation, her grief over a life that just kind of went sideways on her at some point. The things that drive a wedge between you and other people, those things are complicated. And they are for me too. And sometimes, you know, I'm the one at fault. Sometimes you're the one at fault. We bear the fault. Sometimes it's, it's just shared. Sometimes it's mostly the other person, sometimes. But it's easy to find ourselves living like this woman where we're just kind of identified by our past now and, I'm, and we're known by our reputations in the community and as a result of that, we're just kind of isolated from other people and we're just kind of cruising that way for the foreseeable future. The pain it can be an unshakable thirst. And we go to our different wells to satisfy it, desperately looking for peace. And Jesus calls all of us today, come to me and thirst no more. This woman, she came to the well thirsty. 
And when she left, John says that she left her water jar behind. It's a little detail in scripture, a little Easter egg there. She left her water jar behind. It's a little poetic nod from John to the idea that she left never to thirst again. What was her deeper thirst and how did Jesus take it away? He took it away in the same way he takes away our deeper thirst. In John 19, at the end of John's gospel, he's on the cross. He's offering up himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sin. And here's what John writes about that. He says, after this, after Jesus was was nailed to the cross and lifted up, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his life. Jesus took our thirst for peace with God, and he crucified it. He took our emptiness, he took our pain, our fear of trusting others, our rebellious hearts, and he died with those things on his shoulders. And then he rose from the grave, and when he did, defeating the power of death itself, he gave us new life in his name, bearing his reputation now, belonging to his family now, forever. You may feel like an outsider. You're on the outside looking in when it comes to being deserving of anything good. You may think you would never cross the mind of God. What if, as with this woman at the well, he intends to have an encounter with you? And what if that encounter is today? Can you lower your guard to believe that what he has to say to you is not shaming you for the things in your life that make you thirst for peace? What if instead what he has to say is that he knows your thirst and he knows your pain and he knows your reputation and he knows your past and he can take it all away? the pain and the thirst forever. Because he can. In fact, he already has. Do you believe this? Pray with me. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture, for this encounter between your son and this woman who is so like us in so many ways this presumption about what should be, and you upset those, those presumptions. You, you, you shake them up. We thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the places in our lives where we thirst, where we thirst for peace with you, where we thirst for peace with others, and that you would help us to deal honestly with our own hearts and the people in our lives about the wells that we go to to try to satisfy that thirst. Lord, you are merciful and kind. Thank you for offering yourself for being the living water so that we would never thirst again for peace, but we would have it. Thank you for taking our reputations and our pasts 
and for giving us your righteousness and your eternity. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.